StoryQ Podcast, Episode 14. Welcome to the StoryQ Podcast. We are honored that you are listening. I'm Frank Erickson. Hey, are you excited? We're just days away from Thanksgiving and the start of the holiday season, which means gatherings, parties, travel, and to folks like you and me, barbecue. Now, I'm sure many of you have smoked a turkey for Thanksgiving and hopefully had excellent results, but if you've never smoked a turkey, I just want to give you a little bit of a tip and say, don't try it for the first time on Thanksgiving Day without at least one practice cook. The last thing you want to do is serve your family a dried out, overcooked, oversmoked turkey on the biggest food day of the year. It is cooking gaffes like that that are hard to live down and actually will live on in Thanksgiving conversations to years for years to come. So if you don't want it brought up for the next 20, 30, 40 years on Thanksgiving Day, how you ruined Thanksgiving in 2015, I would suggest planning on smoking a turkey before Thanksgiving Day, and be sure to brine the bird the day or the night before, too. There are lots of brine recipes online. There's hundreds, probably thousands of them. But uh, if, you're, if you're familiar with smoking turkeys, you know how great it is. It's absolutely wonderful. I know a lot of people do it for Thanksgiving Day. But again, if you're thinking of trying it for the first time and you've never done it before, I would say do a practice cook this weekend or early next week. Don't go blind into Thanksgiving Day smoking your first turkey. A little example here. A couple of years ago, I smoked a 12-pound turkey on what was then my uh, Traeger Texas smoker, pellet cooker. Now, it came out terrific, and that was the first one I did, but it was for a Christmas party. It wasn't for a big event like Thanksgiving Day, and we were also serving one of those honey-baked hams, which means, you know, if the turkey goes bad, you got honey-baked ham plus all kinds of other goodies that we had. I um I found a brine on the Food Network, courtesy of Tyler Florence. It was basically sugar, salt, fresh garlic, lots of fresh thyme, and we added all those spices to several gallons of water and submerged the turkey in there. We put it in a cooler, which I had thoroughly washed out with lots of hot, hot water and lots of soap and then rinsed it out really well. And then we stored it overnight in our garage because we didn't have room in the fridge. Now, I would suggest if you can make room in the fridge, that's the safest place to do it. But if you got a garage like we do here in Boulder where the temp's going to be in the mid-30s, and plus we had lots of ice in there, so it was pretty safe and we weren't in any danger of the turkey being invaded by Mr. Salmonella. Um, when it was ready to come out... Brined it for about 12 hours or so, rubbed it down with a good rub, and then smoked it at 225 for six hours. And we served this, again, with, I said, alongside a honey-baked ham at a Christmas party we had. And I could not slice this turkey fast enough. It was a huge hit. If you're feeling adventurous and you want to smoke your bird, make sure you brine it the night before so it won't dry out during the cooking process. Make sure you keep it in the fridge overnight. And if you want to stay up and feed your food-safe bucket or sanitized cooler with ice, you can do that, too, if you want to cook it up in the morning. But, you know, at 225, if you're having a party at 6 or 7 o'clock at night, you can throw your bird on at about 1 or 2 in the afternoon at 225. And I, w I wouldn't recommend smoking anything more than about a 12-pound bird. That's, that's really about the limit you want to go, so it doesn't take all day long, and you want to make sure the bird is thoroughly cooked. So that's my suggestion. Uh, obviously, you don't want salmonella creeping into your holiday meal. That would be bad. 
So there's my turkey tip for you for Thanksgiving and for the holidays coming up, leading up to Christmas Day and New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, Super Bowl and beyond. Okay, on with the show. Next Thursday, Thanksgiving Day in the United States, but in the Cayman Islands, it's just another Thursday on the beach. My guest this week on the StoryQ podcast is Dylan Benoit. He is the executive chef for a restaurant group, and he oversees about half a dozen kitchens in the Cayman Islands. Now, all the restaurants have different menus, so you can imagine what kind of a job this is. But one of them serves up good old Texas barbecue right on the beach in the Cayman Islands. Guess which restaurant we're going to talk to Dylan about. Hey, you got it on the first try. Please welcome executive chef, barbecue beachcomber, and StoryQ magazine contributor Dylan Benoit to the StoryQ podcast. Dylan, how's it going? Welcome to the StoryQ podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. You are down in the Cayman Islands, so you are automatically the envy of everybody who will be listening to this podcast in the United States where it's either winter or certainly uh, not summer. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty tough life down here, but somebody's got to do it. What is the temperature like there today? Today it is um, just shy of 100 degrees, looking at about 96, 98, I think, right about now. Well, maybe I'm glad I'm in Boulder where it's 40. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's uh, actually a little bit uh, warmer today than it has been the last few days. It's been raining, so the sun's back out. It's a beautiful day today. Is it usually in the 90s, around 100? Yeah, quite quite often, especially. I mean, it's starting to cool down a little bit now, uh, going into the fall. Um, but uh, the summers get pretty pretty hot down here. Wow, how long have you been down in the Caymans? Been here since 2010, so just over five years now. I want to eventually get into why you went to the Caymans and how everything is going on, but how was it that you got into the food industry and became a chef and, and obviously now the, the executive chef of a group of restaurants? Yeah, that's correct. Um, it started when I was really young. My mom was a fantastic cook, um, and we always grew up eating really, really well around my house. Family meals were a big thing. We always sat around the dinner table together. Um, that wasn't optional when I was growing up. So. Um, Mom would always put a lot of time into meals and uh, we always ate really well. So as I got older, um, I just kind of naturally got into cooking and helping her and uh, realized that I really had a love for it. And then uh, when it was time for me to get my first job, my old man um, hooked me up with uh, a cook job at a restaurant that he was uh, doing some contractor work in. And I immediately fell in love with the lifestyle, the late nights and interesting people that you work with in kitchens. Uh, it was pretty interesting to me at the time and uh, and still continues to be. I've met some incredible people along the road. So um, it started off with a love for food and then it became a love for the lifestyle and then the love for food just kind of snowballed and snowballed. Well, I have to agree with you totally on the lifestyle. I spent five years in the restaurant mostly as a bartender, waiter, head waiter, manager, assistant manager. Love the front of the house. The back of the house definitely wasn't my thing, although I started out as a dishwasher and I was pretty darn good at it. Everybody does. <laughs> but it is it is a crazy lifestyle back in the kitchen, especially when, you know, you get slammed and there's orders up. I would just want to throw you, this out to you. Have you ever seen the movie Dinner Rush? I have not, no. It is a wonderful movie uh, starring Danny Aiello that you okay. really need to check out. It is all about uh, a New York City Italian restaurant. His son is the executive chef. 
and uh, it depicts the lifestyle of a restaurant better than any movie I've ever seen. So, okay, if cool. Anybody, check it out. you or anybody listening to our Story Q podcast, if you haven't seen this movie and you're into restaurants or just want to see a, a great movie that kind of slid under the movie radar, it's called Dinner Rush again with Danny Aiello. So, Dinner Rush. I'll look into that. That being said, and my plug for Danny and Dinner Rush, how <laughs> is it you uh, made the transformation from? chef to executive chef and then down into the Cayman Islands? Well, I came down to Cayman in, in 2010 as a sous chef for a fine dining restaurant. Uh, I used to work with a chef in Canada um, at a seasonal place up in northern Ontario. Uh, and when the season had finished, I went backpacking through South America for several months. And I was supposed to go back to my hometown in Barrie, Ontario and um, open a restaurant at a microbrewery. And I was halfway through my trip somewhere in Ecuador and I was on the phone with the owner of the brewery and he said, you know, we need to postpone, we don't have the money, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and so I was like, okay, well now I have to go back to Canada and find a job. And then I got in touch with uh, my old chef and uh, thinking, you know, maybe I could go back and work with him for the summer. And he says, well, I just came down to Cayman Islands and uh, we're reopening a restaurant down here. And if you want, I could use your help. I'll pay for your flight. You've got a car to use when you get here, and we already have an apartment. You just need to pay rent. So I'm halfway through uh, an adventure in South America, not really ready to go back to Canada. And this other adventure presents itself pretty much on a silver platter. It was kind of a no-brainer. So I thought about it for all of about 30 seconds and, uh, and agreed to it right away. And um, the kicker was I had to agree to a year. It was a one-year contract. I said, yep, no problem. Never been to Cayman before. Didn't even really know where it was. I'd heard of it, obviously, in movies about laundering money and stuff like that but I uh, didn't really know too much about it so um, I said yep no problem I can do that and um, I kept traveling for a few more months made it to Buenos Aires flew back to Canada for six days washed all my clothes repacked my bag and came down here I've been down ever since heck of a story yeah sometimes yeah. that's the way it happens all of a sudden out of the clear blue sky opportunity knocks and that's you it. and you just go for it Absolutely. Obviously, it's worked out. How did you? How did you make? And maybe you can explain exactly what an executive chef does. I think most people know what a chef does. Sure. But as an executive chef, how do you get that title? And then, what are your responsibilities? Well, it sort of depends on the operation. You could have um, one restaurant that would have an executive chef at the top, and then one or two chefs underneath him, and then executive sous chefs and sous chefs and da 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 down the line. Uh, the way that it works in our company is um, we have six restaurants now and I am the executive chef for the company so I oversee all of the food preparation for all six restaurants. Now I also have a chef in each restaurant that runs the day-to-day -day operations. So I'm not necessarily in each restaurant all day every day. Um, so they sort of answer to me and if uh, things go wrong or if there's any issues, I'm held accountable at the end of the day. So I have to make sure that um, everything runs smoothly and I employ good chefs to make sure that their shops run smoothly and we together work on the menus and hiring the rest of the staff for each of the outlets. Take us through a little bit of what an executive chef or, or your day is like as an executive chef. From the time you get to work, what time you get in, what time do you leave? Um, I usually get in around 10 a.m., 10, 10.30, depending on if I have some errands to run in the morning, uh, chopping around the shops, picking up last-minute things. Um, 
And then from about 10.30 until about 11.30 or 12, when lunch starts, it's usually emails and writing menus and different events that are coming up, coordinating with other suppliers and things like that. Um, especially this time of year with going into Christmas, um, my calendar every day has an events catering dinners here, dinners there. So uh, making sure that everybody's set up with those and the menus are created with well in advance. Uh, and then lunchtime comes around and I'm usually, these days I'm set up at Craft, which is one of our outlets. So I'll spend the lunch hour on the line, uh, expediting, calling the tickets, quality checking all the food, making sure it's all good when it goes out. Um, and then 2.33 comes around, uh, finish up any paperwork I have to do, invoices, stuff like that. And then I'll usually take off in the afternoon for an hour or so, go to the gym, go home, grab a shower, come back, make sure dinner specials are ready. Um, everybody's set up for dinner service, 5.30 hits, service starts, and then we're rolling right till about 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock, depending on the day. And then somewhere between 10 and 10.30 after the orders are done and everybody's wrapped up in the kitchen, that's when I'll take off before, uh, before the end of the day. So you only work half a day? Only, only yeah, only about 12 hours a day. That's pretty, that's pretty average. Yeah, average so yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a pretty easy job. Yeah, yeah, it could be worse. <laughs> What are what are the what are the six restaurants uh, like as far as their cuisine? Are they are they varied or are there are there so many um, similarities that it's that it makes life easier for you? Right. Uh, yeah, all of our restaurants are very different. The thing with Cayman is it's so small. Um, we can't really franchise uh, any one concept. So we've got. Um, I guess going north to south on the map, we've got Dukes, which is a seafood and rib shack, sort of like a Creole Southern style cuisine. We've got Lone Star, which is uh, typical to a Lone Star you'll have back home, uh, Texas-style barbecue. We've got Mizu, which is an Asian bistro and bar. So we do uh, Chinese, Thai, Vietnamese, Malaysian, Mongolian, Japanese, a um, little bit of everything. Uh, Waterfront, which is an urban diner. Uh, sandwiches, soup, salads, that type of thing. Our newest restaurant is called The Brooklyn Pizza and Pasta. Um, so we've got a wood-fired pizza oven in there, lots of handmade pastas. Um, fresh breads, that type of stuff. And then Kraft, which is the one that I'm predominantly at these days. And it is um, a gastro pub, I guess, for lack of a better description. A um, lot of traditional style comfort food, things, dishes you would recognize, but with a bit of a twist. Well, let's roll back to the barbecue restaurant. Tell us about that one, since Story Q Magazine is all about barbecue, and that's the focus of our chat today. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so Lone Star, is, uh, Lone Star Bar and Grill is a very common restaurant throughout the U.S. and, and Canada as well. Um, so that we have a Lone Star. It is not um, a member of the Lone Star franchise, but it's a similar concept. So we do um, brisket, ribs, pulled pork, um, fried pickles, chicken wings, like all that kind of southern barbecue stuff that you would come to expect. Um, we have a really nice, uh, massive smoker out back that was supplied to us by Certified Angus Beef. I work very closely with uh, CAB and, and um, the guys over there. Excellent meat quality, excellent meat quality. And we bring it all in from the US. Um, you can get local beef here, but it's, it's, it's very hit and miss, and it's just not up to our quality standards as far as consistency and flavor and marbling and stuff like that goes. So um, we are almost exclusively CAB beef across the board in all six of my shops. With the Lone Star restaurant you have there focusing on Texas barbecue, how popular is that? Is that one of the most popular ones in your group? It is very, very popular. Um, we do a, a massive trade out of there, huge food and drink um, beverage trade. Um, people love the, the barbecue 
food. You know what I mean? As you drive past and you can smell the smoke from the road, you can smell the barbecue sauce, and it's uh, it's uh, like a tractor beam. It draws people in. Can you share with us how many pounds of meat you go through in a week? I'd say we're going through probably 400 pounds of brisket, probably 300 pounds of ribs. I know um, we're going through 100 pounds of pork bellies for bacon. We make our own bacon there. Chicken wings, we're doing at least 150 pounds, 200 pounds a week. So, yeah, it's we're big, big, big volume, yeah. And we're not even in high season yet. So coming into uh, the, the, the bulk of season starting December, January, February, it's going to we'll be ramping up the production even more. And is there a full liquor license there or is it just, just beer or wine? Absolutely, yeah, full liquor license in all of our, all of our shops. So what is the clientele like that rolls into the barbecue restaurant in the Caymans? Yeah, you get a little bit of everything. We do, uh, there's a lot of uh, dive industry uh, that comes and sits in there after they're, they're done scuba diving for the day. You know, you get that happy hour, four or five o'clock crowd. Um, and then a lot of the after work business people come through on their way home as well. Uh, a lot of industry people late at night from the food and beverage industry. Um, we have different theme nights like um, uh, rock and roll bingo, uh, trivia night, uh, open mic night on Wednesdays. So there's a lot of events always happening at, at Lone Star. We also have uh, 16 TVs in there. So it's all the football, all the hockey games coming on now. Um, we just finished all the rugby. So there's uh, there's always something going on at Lone Star. It's never very quiet around there. My restaurant experience came when I was living in Aspen, the ski town here in Colorado. Yeah. And uh, very similar you know, resort, except they came to Aspen to ski, whereas they go to the Caymans to swim and scuba dive. And Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I'll tell you, though, I think one of the most fun things about working in a restaurant is when other people from the restaurant industry come in. Absolutely. You know, they know how to act and they know how to tip. Yep, absolutely. You know, <laughs> that's 100% that's, true. Yeah, that's that's one of the great things. I mean, if a table came in from a certain restaurant that we knew, there was a fight over who was going to wait on it. Absolutely, them. yeah. You always want the industry table, for sure. For it was sure. going to be a great tip and it was going to be a great time. Yeah, how did, you, how did you uh, how did you gain your attraction to barbecue, and how did you learn how to how to create good barbecue? I've always been a fan. I mean, we grew up with um, not so much the traditional Texas style barbecue being in Canada, um, but we always had ribs. Ribs were a big thing at our house. Uh, pulled pork was a big thing, like roasted pork shoulders. Um, we didn't do so much brisket when I was growing up. That was something that I kind of learned along the way. Um, but we uh, we had a place. Uh, growing up in, in northern Ontario, a cottage on the lake, and every weekend when we'd go up there, it was just basically a big cookout, you know, and spend a bit of time on the water. So my brother and I, especially with ribs and uh, and things like that, we'd experiment a lot growing up, different ways to prepare them. Is it better to blanch them or is it better to braise them? Is it better to smoke them or is it better to not? So um, we'd always, every weekend we'd have a different recipe we were going to try, and, and some of them were real winners, some of them not so much, but that's the joy of trial and error, you know. Most of the listeners to this podcast are backyard barbecue chefs like I am, which right. means we go out there as often as we can, and it could be hit or miss. We may have a recipe. We may be flying by the seat of our tongues. Yeah. Um, but uh, how, would you, how would you advise someone who's cooking in the backyard, let's say, and since you're a fan of ribs, which I think everybody is, is there a certain type of, of rib recipe that you might be able to share or a technique that might be able to help somebody along? Definitely. There's two main techniques that I, I like to use, and it depends on what you're gonna, whether you're going to dry rub it, your ribs, or not. If you're going to dry rub your ribs, make your rub, whatever it is, put them on, 
the night before you're going to cook him and uh, leave him in the fridge. And then the next day, you want to put him in a deep... Put your rub on the night before. Yes, yeah, yeah. Wrap them um, or uh, air dry them in the fridge? Um, I would leave them to air dry. You want to create a little bit of a, a kind of sticky tack on the outside, uh, especially if you're going to be smoking. Um, but the best thing to do if you're going to dry rub them is to stick them in a deep dish uh, and stick them so they're, they're vertical. The bones are sticking straight up and kind of stack them side by side by side, if you will. And then put a little bit of liquid in the bottom, wrap them in saran wrap and then in tin foil and then do them in the oven. So it's kind of like a steam braise. Right? Um, what you're doing there is breaking down the, the tendons and the, the fibers in the meat so that they become super tender and they just fall off the bone. The other way to do it is if you're not going to dry rub them, I would sear them on the grill or in a pan first and then submerge them completely in liquid, whether it's stock or um, uh, some people use soda. I've done them in root beer before or ginger ale with like uh, ginger and garlic and lemongrass if you want to go with sort of an Asian theme and cook them at a really low temperature as well. And that's called a braise. So you're, you're doing a low and slow and everything becomes very tender and falls off the bone. If you're going to dry rub your ribs, that way doesn't work so much because the dry rub comes off right into the liquid. So that's the only difference. What about if you're going to smoke them? Can you, can you take those same techniques and then go to the smoker or the grill? Absolutely. What I would do is, is cook them till they're tender, leave them to cool completely, um, especially if you're doing the braising technique where they're submerged in the liquid. You want to let them cool inside that liquid so all the juices redistribute throughout. After they're nice and cool, you can put them back on the grill. Um, or in the smoker and smoke them at that point. And at that point, can they still, they'll, they're just taking on smoke at that point because they're basically cooked. Correct, correct, yeah. So you can put them on, let them get some smoke or throw them on the grill and char them up. And Exactly, and that's when you'd want to hit them with some barbecue sauce and stuff like that as well. So it's a, it's, it's a bit of an involved process, but you end up with a very, very tender fall off the bone. You're never going to fight with it. And um, you have a lot more control that way over how tender they are, how much smoke you have. Um, the only problem with smoking before you do, uh, say, a braising technique is you lose a, a bit of that smoke flavor into the liquid. You know, there's a, a bit of a controversy here in the States and, and among barbecue people in the States about pre-cooking ribs, whether it be braising or, or, a, or a parboil or something like that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people prefer to just put them right on the smoker and let them go for there. In your experience, do you find you get a better product by braising where, they, where it really can build up you know, moisture in the ribs and they stay tender? I do. I do find that I get a better product. Now, I also have to think about it from an execution standpoint as a chef. I'm not just doing a rack or two of ribs for my friends on a Sunday afternoon. I'm doing 50 or 100 pounds of ribs at a time so that I can push them out and bang them out when the order comes in and uh, get them out onto a plate so you can enjoy them in a timely manner. So I can't, be, I can't just have my smoker running for um, you know, 48 hours or 24 hours a day and just pull the ribs off when I need them. I have to have them ready to go. So I also find that during with a braising technique, if you flavor that liquid that's around it, you can impart a lot more flavor, different flavors into the ribs if that's something you're going for. If you just want that smoked pork barbecue flavor, then yeah, sure, throw them on the smoker and let them go for six or eight or 10 hours, you know? Um, but you won't get that ginger and lemongrass flavor if you wanted to do, say, a, a, an Asian-style rib or if you wanted to do like a, a kolbe 
Korean style rib with soy sauce and sesame and stuff like that, which we tend to do. Obviously not at Lone Star, we keep it very, uh, very traditional there, but we do like to experiment with our ribs and, and, uh, and uh, cuts of meat at different locations. So. As you probably know, Austin is one of the capitals of barbecue in the United States. Absolutely. And uh, there's a restaurant there called Lambert's, which mm-hmm. takes barbecue sort of to the, hmm, how do I want to phrase this? Uh, I'll say chef side of things instead of just okay. the pit master side of things. Okay. And um, from an episode that I saw, I think it was on the Food Network, they actually, I, th- I think, I don't know if it's braising, but they, they submerge their ribs in a liquid with a lot of citrus and a lot of herbs and different things like that for at least 24 hours before they put them on the smoker. And I've, I've had their ribs there, and while they're not very traditional, they're really good. Right. Really, really yeah. good. It, yeah. it kind of, I mean, it, it tastes like a rib, but it kind of gives you that something extra. And it, it sounds like that's what you guys are going for down there. Absolutely. I mean, it's not, it's not traditional. A lot of the things that we do, especially at Kraft, um, the restaurant that I'm at predominantly, we take a traditional dish and do it in a non-traditional way. And that's sort of become my personal style of cooking. Um, and that's, that's obviously not the, uh, the, the avenue that a purist would like to go. So I see where the the conflict and the uh, debate comes in. It just ends up being personal preference at the end of the day. I don't think one's any better than the other. Sometimes I want a straight up barbecue smoked rib, but sometimes I want something a little bit different. So it's nice to have those options. You know, a lot of restaurants, uh, and and you mentioned, fall off the bone type quality, where at a barbecue contest, at a barbecue contest, if it literally fell off the bone, you would score low. Let a okay. lot, yet, a lot of consumers go into restaurants and they absolutely love the fact that a rib will come right off the bone. Mm-hmm. Do you find that uh, there at your restaurant? Absolutely. I mean, it's not, the, not to the point where if I grab the bone and pull it off the table, that the, the meat's going to stay on the table. It obviously has to stick. But I don't want to be, in my personal opinion and, and in the opinion of most of my customers, I don't want to have to be chewing and gnawing on the bone on a rib. Yeah. So it sounds like you're cooking them, you know, the, the whole thing of fall off the bone where some people like that fact that, mm-hmm. you know, you can, you basically, and I've been to a few restaurants, barbecue places, they call it fall off the bone and it really does. Yeah. I mean, you try to, you know, if they serve the slab unsliced and, and if you really, sometimes I think if you overcook ribs and you serve up a slab, you have to serve it whole because if you go to slice it, it'll just disintegrate. Yeah, it will. It'll, yeah. it'll just come Basically, the meat pulls off the bone rather than being able to slice it. You can't get a right. sharp enough knife. Well, I would, I would still consider that to be overcooked. You can overcook anything. So there, there is a fine balance there. There is a medium. You want it to be super tender so you don't have to fight with it. But if you can't pick the rib up without the meat staying on, then, it, then that's no good either. Okay. You are a true barbecue chef as well. So I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. You really do know what you're doing, which I, I didn't suspect that you didn't, but that, that, that just confirmed it for me. Yeah. We do have a dish at one of our restaurants called Duke's and it's a, a braised short rib. Now that literally does fall off the bone, but that's the intention there. Exactly. So, yeah. so how did you get involved with Story Q magazine and, and become a contributor? That's a good question. Um, I was uh, posting some stuff on on Instagram a few months ago, and um, I believe it was Laverne who uh, who runs the Instagram account there and liked one of my posts. And um, you know, I tend to check up on on you know who's keeping tabs on me and and see what's happening out there. So I saw StoryQ magazine. That's interesting, and and um, 
and saw what what StoryQ was all about and, and started looking through the photos and checking out some of the links and and obviously got my attention right away so um, I got in touch with Laverne and said hey I, I saw that you liked one of my, my photos um, I like what you're doing this is what I can uh, help you with is there anything you want like would you like to uh, kind of partner up and, and do some work together and, and it's kind of snowballed from there I've uh, contributed to three of the issues now and, and working on a fourth one for December so it's uh, it's working out well I am about to begin my uh, my article for the December issue. I my my deadline is the twentieth, so I'm letting it go right down to <laughs> yeah, <laughs> down to the wire. Well, because you know, I, pressure on. Laverne allows me to kind of freelance and write about whatever I want as long as it's related to barbecue. Sure. And uh, sometimes I have to rack my brain of like, okay, how do I not repeat myself on this, yeah. and how do I make it interesting for the readers? Yeah. Which is, do you have some writing experience in your background? I do a little bit, yeah. I work with a couple of different publications um, uh, locally and internationally, uh, a few websites and do recipes and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not a, a foreign concept to me. And, and every time I do a little bit more, uh, I feel like I'm getting a little bit more involved and a little bit better at it. So I'm enjoying the challenge. Do you see yourself staying in the Caymans or do you have a dream now as an executive chef to becoming maybe a restaurant group owner? Um, perhaps down the line. Um, I've still got a lot of places I'd like to go and a lot of things I'd like to do before I plant myself in one spot and open up a one or more restaurant. I mean, once you do that, you're, you're kind of in for the long haul. So um, I'm in Cayman for the next little while. I do have a plan to, uh, to do some traveling next year. So it's in its infancy stages right now. We'll see kind of where that takes me. So you kind of have that roving bug as part of your life as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is the longest I've been in one spot since I left my parents' house at the age of 18, you know, being in Cayman for, for five years. So I've moved around quite a bit. I've done extensive traveling through South America, Central America, Southeast Asia, uh, the Caribbean, and uh, there's a, a lot more of the world that I've yet to see. So um, I'm making some, making some plans to get caught up on the rest of the spots that I've missed. Have you cooked along the way? I have, yeah. Not necessarily as uh, for jobs, but I'm always eating and writing down and recipeing and, and uh, experimenting where I can, definitely. What would be your ideal meal at, at a barbecue restaurant? If you could sit down at any barbecue place or just create your own barbecue feast for you and just a few friends, what would that look like? Um, there would be a lot of short rib involved. I'm, I'm a huge short rib fan. Um, also a really nice brisket sandwich. Nice and simple, just barbecue sauce, maybe some frizzled onions, good quality bread, um, and cornbread. Love cheddar and jalapeno cornbread. So good. I love that too. How about your uh, favorite <laughs> beverage to go with that? Definitely beer. Nice cold cerveza. A Lone Star? What's that? A Lone Star? A Lone Star, yeah, I'll take a Lone Star. I'll take a Lone Star for sure. And maybe a little bit of bourbon for afterwards. Well, it appears we're all on the same page here. <laughs> <laughs> Great minds think alike. Yeah, definitely. Hey, thank you very much for your time. I know as an executive chef, uh, like you say, 12 hours a day, so you do have the other 12 hours to mess around and goof off. But yeah. um, trying to put some sleep in there and social life, uh, it's not an easy job, and I thank you for taking time out of your busy week uh, to spend some time with us here on StoryQ uh, Magazine's podcast. Frank, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Mine too. I hope our paths get to cross. I'd love an excuse to come down to the Caymans. Anytime. The door's open. All right, my friend. Thanks much. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. You know, I could see myself kicking back on the beach Thanksgiving Day in the Caymans, munching on a big old turkey leg, couldn't you? Well, maybe, maybe next year. 
Hey, that's our podcast for this week. I'll be back on Friday, December 4th with another edition of the Story Q podcast. Until then, I'm Frank Erickson wishing you a joyous and blessed Thanksgiving day. Take care, my friends. Thank you.